0: We'll look at the entirety of this chapter this morning. Starting in verse 1. I'm a little worried about my lectern here. Leaning. This is God's Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we are thankful again that we get to uh, sit before your word as a community and we get to learn together as holy brothers and sisters. So God, I pray that you would, you would open our ears to hear, that you would give us minds to understand and give us hearts to receive what you have to show us from your holy word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So just so you know that the Bible is is connected, We're not, you don't just look at books of the Bible as, as kind of like these separate entities. I mean, you can and we do. but but to know like Hebrews is is at a particular place in, in the history and story of God's people, um, and so it's it's placed in, 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 in a strategic way. And so you have all of these other uh, books of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to the end to Revelation. All of these are, are connected. And so I wanted to show that a little bit here in the introduction with the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. And so we, we've gone through the book of Galatians before, so if you remember that, that long ago, a few years back, you remember that the Galatians were in, in a bad state. The Galatians were, were actively walking away from Jesus. They were, they were going back to their old ways. It was a Jewish crowd, and they were going back to their old ways, and they thought, you know what, it, was, uh, it made more sense that our works could save us. It just made more sense. So, so they were going back to that. And these are Paul's words to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, you foolish Galatians. And that word foolish can actually be translated as stupid. You stupid Galatians. I apologize if any kids are not allowed to say stupid. I'm, I see them. I see them. But Paul says that, you stupid Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has come in and rearranged your imagination about who Jesus is? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So Paul is asking, asking the Galatian church, you begun this life, the Christian life, you begun this life in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit's work, why are you trying to finish this life, why are you trying to finish the Christian life in your flesh? You, you've trusted Christ to, do, to, to, to save you, uh, to continue to do His good work in you. you, you began that way and you were excited about it, and now you've gone back to your old ways. You're trying to finish the Christian life in your flesh. Well, during this Advent season, we have been trying to to, to contemplate Christ a bit more, to to examine Him, to, to purposefully put our minds or set our minds on Him. Because our temptation is the same temptation that the Galatians had and the people in which Hebrews is being written has. It's beginning the Christian life well, but not finishing well. So we're in the Advent season, but in reality, we are always in the Advent season because Advent simply means, in in, in Latin, Advent means to wait with expectation. That's what Advent means, to wait. And and we are waiting in expectation for Christ, our King, to come again. That's what we're waiting for. And, And we can very easily lose sight of what we are waiting for in the Advent We can get sidetracked. And so in our text this morning, in Hebrews chapter 3, our writer gives us three actions in which to help us in the waiting. He He gives us three actions to help keep our mind in this contemplative state upon the king that we are waiting for. So three things here. One is to consider. Two is to listen. And three is to hold on. So consider, listen, and hold on. So first, consider in verses 1 through 6. So here we have Hebrews reminding us right at the outset how we are bound together as the body of Christ. And this is really important for us to, to grasp as we move through this chapter uh, of, the le- of the letter of Hebrews. Uh, he declares here in verse 1 that those who are in Christ are holy brothers and sisters, holy brothers and sisters, because they have this one thing in common. They share in a heavenly calling. So his audience in the book of Hebrews is a Christian audience. And he wants them to know that as those who have been changed by the gospel, one of the first things they must do is consider Jesus. Or as the NIV puts it, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Jesus. And so he gets this from the previous verses. He, says, therefore, he starts chapter 3 with therefore again. So, so we know he's getting this idea from these previous verses because this idea is framed by the person and work of Jesus. So just look back at chapter 2, verse 17. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the author of Hebrews is simply reminding his Jewish-Christian audience, this is what Christ has done for you, and you, and you. As individuals, this is what Christ has done. He, is, he has personally paid for your sins. He is your propitiation. So this begs the question, why is he telling Christians to consider Jesus? Isn't this something they've already done? Haven't they considered Jesus? I mean, this is why they're called Christians or why we are called Christians, right? That means at some some point in our life, we have considered Jesus and believed upon Him to save us from our sins. Why would He tell them this? Why do we need to continue to consider Him? Well, remember, these early Christians had a religious background that was steeped in Judaism. So unlike us, they've experienced and, and practiced um, the sacrifices and the festivals of the Old Covenant. They were actively involved in these things. They, they knew what it meant to celebrate the Passover, like truly celebrate it. And they knew what it looked like to, to take an animal to the temple for the specific person per, a purpose of dying for that person's sins. They knew all of these things. It was clear in their mind. They didn't have to use their imagination because they experienced them. But now, now they've also experienced the resurrection power of Jesus Christ within the New Covenant. Some of them, I said a few weeks ago, probably were present for that. They may have seen Jesus crucified. They may, they may have been some of the, the hundreds of people who saw Him a- a- after the resurrection. So they've seen the the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ. They know eyewitnesses. They're friends with them. They they can recall these things. They didn't really have to use their imagination that much, as we do. So these early Christians have, have two equal and opposite pressures going on at the same time. And this is where the struggle lies. So one is, the first, the, the first pressure is Moses and the law. So, so we see it mentioned here in these six verses. This is what the author is trying to convey as he compares Moses to Jesus. And simply, what he's doing there, at, like he did in chapter 1, it says, Christ is, Christ is supreme over angels. Now he's saying, Christ is supreme over Moses. So he's just kind of checking the boxes of where these Jewish Christians were placing their hope. He's like, look, Christ is better than angels. Look, Christ is better than Moses. So, so on the one hand, for many of these Jews, the, Moses and the law was an unbending reality. Even after they became Christians, Moses and the law were, were complete for God's chosen people. That's really, they were saying, that's really all we need. All we need is Moses and the law, and we'll be okay. So this is where a person landed during this uh, particular time. The best thing that they could say about Jesus, even though they would admit he existed, they, they would admit that he's done some, some, some cool things in their life, um, they, he's had some really good teaching, the, the best they could say is he brings new insights into the keeping of the law. Essentially saying, he was, he was a really good teacher. He was a really good rabbi. But it's Moses who remains primary for me. Meaning that the law would continue to determine the shape of God's people. Not not Jesus, not the gospel, but the law. But the consequence of this belief would mean that they also hadn't believed that God's kingdom had arrived yet. As is true today with, with many Jews... Uh, they're still awaiting the Messiah. Now, the other pressure or extreme was was to throw out Moses and the law altogether. So you had some on this one extreme where they said, no, we're going to hold on to Moses and the law. And then you had others on this other extreme that said, no, we must get rid of Moses and the law because Jesus has come. So some of these early Christians were so excited to see the fulfillment of the law and and the fulfillment of the prophets in Christ that they were ready to move as fast as they could in that direction. But by doing so, by doing this, they were doing a couple of things. They were were throwing out uh, not only large portions of the story of Jesus from the Old Testament, but they were also throwing out large portions of their own story as well. The message of the Bible is about God coming to His people, and that message begins way back in Genesis. So remember Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to throw out Moses and the law. I came to fulfill them. I came to complete them. So the point Hebrews is making in these first six verses is that that Jesus brings all of the story together. That's what Jesus does. Jesus is the thread that runs throughout the entirety of the story of God in the Bible. He brings all of it together. So the, the, the author here is saying, so you're to fix your eyes on him. You are to consider Jesus, not Moses, not the law. This is how New Testament scholar Tom Wright puts it in his commentary. He says, he says, Moses matters, but Jesus matters more. Moses was a true servant of God, but Jesus is God's son. You don't diminish Moses by making Jesus superior to him. Rather, you give him his right place. So what we can take from this is recognizing that there are also two pressures... That, that, that keep us from considering Jesus, that keep us from really contemplating on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And those two, things, those two pressures are, one is looking back, and the other is looking forward. So looking back was a problem for these Jewish believers. We already know this from a couple of weeks ago. Well, they have been confronted with some sort of obstacle. We're not sure what that obstacle was probably persecution, probably some level of suffering from, from the world, um, and they're ready to turn back. They're saying, you know, as Jews, when we were practicing Judaism, we didn't get this much grief. People kind of left us alone, but now that we are Christians, we are scorned, we are ostracized, we're persecuted. Some of us are even being killed for our faith. And so they're ready to turn back to the to the old comforts instead of, pressing into what God has put before them. So the question you must ask yourself then is what are you tempted to look back at when faced with obstacles in your life? And I'm speaking particularly to the Christians in the room. What are you tempted to, turn, to, 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 to look back at and to turn your back to Christ over when you meet suffering? When you actually have to believe the gospel for a situation that arises in your life, and I can say a lot of us don't really haven't really experienced situations in our life where we've actually had to believe what we uh, or to trust in what we actually believe to really push us to that point to say, this is something that I've taught, this is something that I've said out loud, this is something that I teach my kids, this is something that I read in the Bible, uh, these are things that I would confess with my other brothers and sisters on a Sunday, and now God is calling me to the mat, so to speak, and saying, do you truly believe this? But what are you tempted to look back at when faced with these sorts of obstacles? I believe this is why Jesus, over and over again in the Gospels, uh, uh, told his followers to count the cost of following him. Over and over again in the Gospels, we, you can see Jesus kind of giving his followers an out. Because he had lots of people following. It wasn't just the twelve following him. He had crowds of people who were surrounding him and who were following him and who were listening to his teaching and were attracted to his teaching. Um, and he lets them know over and over again how hard it's going to be. He says to them, I don't, I don't have a home. And that could, be, that could be your reality if you follow me. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take up a cross and die. And that could be your reality if you follow me. So over and over again, he's trying to give them an out because what he's saying is the Christian life will cost you something. And what it will cost you is your life. Your entire life. Every part of your life. Nothing is exempt from the gospel. Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 14, which are some of the hardest words I think for some people to hear because it involves family members. But he goes right for the jugular here, especially in a Jewish culture. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That's from Jesus. That if your love for your family, your mom, your dad, your wife, your children, your husband, your brothers and sisters, if your love for them outweighs your love for Jesus, Jesus says you cannot my disciple. Because these are some of the things you will want to be central again in your life when you start to feel the burden of the cross. You will lean back into those things from your past. You will, you will begin to, to cast your, your gaze back over your shoulder and say, Man, it was so comfortable then. I mean, very very practically speaking, maybe thinking about it this way, maybe you, in your marriage, maybe things are a bit rocky. And you begin thinking, you know what, I was way more free when I was single. It was so much easier then. And now I have this person, sinner living with me that won't let me do anything. Or, you, you, you know, you, in that same spirit, you say, you know, I wonder what happened to that guy or girl that I knew in college or high school. Were really nice to me. They did the things that I wanted to do. I wonder if I can, I can find them on Facebook and reconnect with them. Or in your family. Do you have kids? Parenting is, is hard. But you know what isn't hard? Video games. My hobbies. Even my work. I could stay there a little extra longer because I can avoid raising my children. Or letting my spouse do all the work. I mean, that's, that's something I can look back at. Or even in the world. I mean, we're all in the world every single day. You're being confronted by the reality of, of a sinful and broken culture in your jobs and in, in, your, uh, in your schools. Every single day you are faced with those realities. So you start to get pushback concerning your faith. And you have to make a decision that in order to stay faithful to the gospel would mean to ostracize yourself from friends and, yes, even family members. And so you think, man, it would be much easier if I could just keep my mouth shut or just go along with the crowd, kind of keep my head down. So that's the first pressure, is looking back. The second pressure is looking forward. Now, you might that might sound like it's going against something you've been told your whole life. But, but the thing I want you to see is that looking forward can be just as damaging as looking back over your shoulder. One, uh, one of the most helpful, uh, oh, sorry, not helpful. Scratch that from the record. One of the most unhelpful catchphrases made popular within the church the, fa- the past few years, and I think I've harped on this before, is the phrase, the best is yet to come, which is actually a Frank Sinatra song, by the way but the church has hijacked it and taken this and put it on T-shirts, put it on bumper stickers, and to say, the best is yet to come. And this is the mantra that is preached every single Sunday. And the reason why I despise this statement so much is that this sort of mindset communicates a lot that I, that I don't believe is especially helpful to Christians who are walking in a broken world. Because it communicates that the here and now... What's right before you isn't God's best for you. That your, that your present situation, something that you might be walking through right now that is particularly hard, is not what God wants you to be walking through. So you end up, if you, take, if you grasp onto this sort of worldview that the best is yet to come, that as soon as you, as soon as you meet hardship or you meet suffering, well, the first, thing, the first thought in your mind is not, how is, how is God teaching me through this, through this opportunity of suffering? How is he trying to draw me closer to Jesus? No, your first thought is, let me get the heck out of this as quickly as possible because this is terrible. And you don't sit in it when God wants you to sit in it. So I think a lot of us miss, actually miss God's best, because we're always looking into the future. We're always thinking about the what ifs, and what if this happens, or I can't wait until this particular thing happens. And so it communicates that your present trouble is not necessarily what God intends for you, and then it ultimately says, God is not good, and His plan is wrong. So I can lean into this obscure catchphrase and say, "Well, the best is yet to come." I mean, just apply it simply. Apply it if you think if you think the best for you is to get married, and you never get married, where does that leave you? If you or it's, say if you think God's best for you is to get married and you never get married, where does that leave you? If you think the best for you is to have children and you can't have children, what then? If you think the best, God's best for you is to live a long and happy life, and then you get a, a terminal diagnosis at your next uh, physical, wh- where does that leave you in your relationship with God? If the best thing for you or God's best for you is that your kids uh, become happy, successful, Jesus-loving adults, and then your son or daughter calls you one day and says they no longer believe, where does that leave you? Is that God's best for you? Now, if you're referring to the best is yet to come as in looking to the second advent uh, in, in Revelation 22.20 and we, we, we pray the prayer, come Lord Jesus, and come quickly, that's a little different. Looking, you're looking toward that, that heavenly reality because here in verses 1 through 6, this is what Hebrews is telling you to do that no matter what your present situation is, the way in which you walk through it, not just get through it, but walk through it, or sit in it, is that you fix your mind on Jesus. Consider Him carefully. Not angels, not Moses, and not yourself. I like this translation because it implies, this translation of considering Jesus because it implies that Jesus is worth considering. So it's, it's an invitation. So if someone asks you to consider something, uh, they, typically say, they typically believe in what they are telling you to consider. Consider this, because I believe in it, I rely upon it, uh, upon it, and I have evidence to its effectiveness in my life personally. And this is what we see Hebrews doing in verse 6. The author says, But Christ is faithful over God's house, As a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence, or you could translate that as confession, and our boasting in our boasting in our hope. So, a confession in the early church had a wider meaning because it meant telling people what's really true about what you believe. We do this in our liturgy every single week. We call we call ours an affirmation of faith. But it could it could also be called our confession of faith. This is what one commentator wrote about confession. He says, uh, "Confession means owning up, not to having done something wrong, but to believing in the Christian message and to belonging to the Christian m- movement." Yes, I do believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that God raised Him from the dead. Yes, I do believe that all God's purposes and promises came true in Jesus. Yes. I do belong to the family that Jesus regards as his brothers and sisters. And that's what you're doing when you are considering Jesus. You're you're owning up and confessing to being part of Jesus' family as his holy brothers and sisters. And as holy brothers and sisters who consider Jesus, that means our ears will then be ready to take on this second exercise that our author calls us to, which is listening. Listening. In verses 7 through 13. Now, listening is something that we do every single day of our life. It's, it's part of our survival, uh, ultimately. If we don't listen uh, in certain situations, it could literally cost us our life. But it's also important in the Christian life to listen which is what these next few verses are calling us to do. In verse 7, you could actually translate that particular verse there. Uh, So listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says. So it's important to remember our catechism question from this morning concerning how the Spirit helps us, because that is the Spirit's job. Jesus called the Spirit our helper. I'm going to send the helper to you. And so the Holy Spirit helps us, By convicting us of our sins, comforting us, guiding us, giving us spiritual gifts, and the desire to obey God, and he enables us to pray and to understand God's word. So this helps us see that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, doesn't just show up in a high-energy worship service. For some reason, we have to kind of drum up the Spirit's work in our life and then, then, then somehow He will magically appear amongst us. Uh, it's not something, the Spirit is not something that's only available to those who are more inclined to the charismatic gifts that we see in the Scriptures. No, the Spirit, you have to understand this, the Spirit, as believers, is always present and doing His work amongst you. The Spirit is with us right now. He is doing His work amongst us. He is doing His work amongst God's people. And He is doing it right now through this text. So the Spirit is saying to us, the Spirit is speaking to you now audibly from God's Word, and He is saying, listen to me. Listen to me. Because He is causing our eyes to look back at this example of God's people from Psalm 95, and hopefully to learn from their mistakes which is, which is really just a thorough uh, look at the sin of unbelief. And this sin begins with what is highlighted in verse 8, when he says, the psalm writer says, Do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Don't harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion. Now, the he, now Hebrews' Jewish audience would know exactly where this was coming from, This is why the the author goes on to to exposit Psalm 95. But for us, we have to look back to know how exactly where this this happened. So, Shelby read for us from Psalm 95 uh, already, but Psalm 95.8 says uh, that this particular moment that the psalmist is addressing here in Hebrews, uh, he says it happened at Meribah in Massah in the wilderness. Now, if you're not as familiar with your Old Testament, you... Those those two things come from, from the book of Exodus and the Book of Leviticus, but we learn that at, at, at Meribah and Manasseh, this is where God's people tested the Lord. So this is where God's people said, Hey, we're thirsty. You know, they're complaining, they're they're kind of sh- they're shouting out against their leader and ultimately kind of rebelling against God. God doesn't love us, God isn't he's not providing for us, we're thirsty, he can't even give us water, and this is where Moses strikes the rock and water comes out of the rock for the people. But essentially what this is doing, what this is doing is, is they're beginning to demonstrate unbelief in the Lord's work and the Lord's way amongst them. So God isn't giving us three square meals a day. And all everything that we need at the time we want it. And so, God, that means God, we can't trust Him anymore. We can't trust in His work and we can't trust in His, his ways anymore. And so, we're going we're to complain and argue and rise up against our leaders. Now, it's interesting that the psalm writer would point to this specific instance in the life of God's people because this is not the moment when God disciplines his people by having them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That comes actually a little bit later, um, where they're not allowed to enter the promised land. They're saying, you guys, this generation, they're just going to loop it around the desert until all of them perish. And that's your discipline, because you did not trust me to enter into this land that I was giving to you. So in this scene, they do complain, but God provides. He gives them the water that they want. But I believe the reason he begins with this scene... It's to show that the hardening of your heart, the sin of unbelief, it has a subtle starting point, and then it gradually kind of moves about in your heart. Subtle, it's small, you probably don't even think about it. But if you look back at the text from Psalm 95, he jumps from the rebellion at Meribah and Massa to the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So what what the author is saying here is that the pattern of unbelief remained with them and then it slowly consumed them to the point that they actually sent uh, spies into this promised land who came back and said, this is what's there. And it is everything that God promised, but there are some massive people in that land and we're really scared of them, so I don't think that's what God wants for us. And then God disciplines them and sends them on this trip around the desert for 40 years. This, I think, is to show that, that the hardening of your heart starts with something small. It's subtle. Maybe, maybe even you, you might have been complaining to God, and God, you know, He's not answering your prayers, and He gave you the answer, yet the sin of unbelief has already kind of rooted itself into your heart. And it slowly and and gradually kind of hardens your heart over time towards God to the point where you don't trust Him anymore. So that we're better able to hear this warning, Hebrews wants us to imagine ourselves like the wilderness generation. Hebrews wants to put us in in that spot uh, on our way to God's promised future because we are. Even as we sit here today, we remember that God's people had to wait. That's what Advent reminds us of. That God's people actually had to wait for the first Advent. And in the Advent, we are called to be faithful until the second Advent of Christ's return to come and make all things new. So a couple of applications from the text to help us, okay? So in verse 12, in verse 12 the author says to us, Take care. Take care. And we could add to to this particular phrase, take care of each other. Take care of each other. One of the reasons that we're called in communion together as a church is to keep each other from unbelief. Do you know that? that? That we're not just gathered here because we just have this affinity for this new church plant and and we enjoy, you know, you know, meeting in a smelly school cafeteria, and that's what bonds us together. The reason that we are called together, one of the reasons we're called together into communion is to keep each other from unbelief. To help us to mature in the gospel. Because the Christian life is not primarily an individual activity. You need the church. You need these holy brothers and sisters around you that are sitting there. You might not think you do, but you do. God has called you into communion with these specific people, and you need them. And they need you. So throughout church history, a community is something that Christians constantly invested in. You see it when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 1, and then it flows into Acts chapter 2, their immediate immediate kind of uh, living is to be together in community. That's what they do. That's what they automatically go and do. So the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic book, Life Together, says this. Talking about confession, but the whole book's about uh, community. But he says, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a person by themselves. It withdraws them from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over them. And the more deeply they they become involved in it, the more disastrous is their isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. So if you find yourself a member of this body and then you at some point in time you 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 had this feeling that you should withdraw from this body you need to quickly check your heart because the sin of unbelief is rooting itself into your heart the sin of unbelief is pulling you away from community the sin of unbelief is trying to consume you and to poison your hearts that's the first application, to take care of each other. The second application flows, in, uh, flows from that first application, but it helps us to understand how we care for each other. And it's found in verse 13 that says, to exhort or encourage each other every day. Every day we are to be doing that. Later in Hebrews chapter 10 it says, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Acts 2.46. I mentioned that just a minute ago. We see what this looks like. They say, and uh, uh, Luke says, and day by day, they were attending the temple together, so they were worshiping together. And then they were breaking bread in their homes, which means they were eating together. They were sharing meals together. So why do we need to do this? Is it to grow the church? Is it it to give us a better self-esteem, to make make us feel better about ourselves? Neither of those. The reason we need to do this is so that none of us will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this tells us that your sin, your sin and my sin, is real and deadly. God himself says this in Genesis chapter 4 as, he, uh, as he's interacting with Cain, who is about to commit the first murder in all of history. And Cain is kind of stomping around in his anger, and uh, he's very upset. And so God comes to Cain and says, well, If you do well, Cain, will you not be accepted? Essentially saying, if you, if, you, if you worship me, if you follow in obedience to what I'm calling you to do, like your brother has done, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. So you get this picture of, of this, this, this lion waiting for its prey. Crouching and waiting. And he says, sin's desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Sin... Can deceive you to the point that you will rationalize and compromise something you once knew to be sinful, unbiblical, and clearly against God's design. And this is why we must encourage each other daily. So let me just give you some practical ways that you can do that. Because when he says every day or daily, it's not just like in general. That's not what that means. It's specific. So he actually means encourage your holy brothers and sisters every day. Every day. So here's, a, here's some ways you can do that. Uh, text that brother or sister you haven't seen in a while. Uh, block out an evening a week where you have someone over for dinner from the church. Uh, one easy way to do that is, is to take the church directory, and if you need a copy of that, I can send that to you. You can work your way through the church directory. Okay, Go alphabetically. So you might want to get a head start on that, because as we grow, it's going to get harder and harder to do that. But the reason I say work through the church directory, I mean, start with A and just go through it, is because you will be tempted to just have people over to your house within this congregation who are just easy to be around and comfortable. Which means everybody will have Matthew Travis over every day of the week. (laughs) So work your way through it. Put yourself around people that you wouldn't normally put yourself around. Uh, if you if you if you're in the workplace and you have you know you're you're out you know uh, you're you're at an office every day or whatever you if you can use your lunches strategically. Take people out one to one, disciple them, encourage them, build them up, or maybe coffee before work, whichever works out best for you. Work that into your schedule. If you are somebody who is a letter writer, people still do that. Write letters to people. Take the, take the church directory and just go down the list and write letters of encouragement to people. Also, you can, the church directory is so effective here. Use the church directory to pray for others who you are in communion with here at Christ the King Church. And, and we do this as elders. We, we work our way through the church directory. We pray. Every elders meeting, we pray for four different people every single time. We're working our way through that. And then as you do that... As you work your way through the directory, when you pray for that person that particular day, then just shoot them a text message and say you prayed for them. And this is how I prayed for you today. Hope you're doing well. So easy. Another thing that's pretty easy is show up for worship. Show up for your missional community. Show up for these gatherings that you're called to be. You know you're going to be around these people. And I know you enjoy being around these people because of how hard it is to call, call you back from the passing of the peace. To show up. People need to see you. They want to hear you sing. They want your encouragement. They want to talk to you. And then just recognize that these are small things. They're not earth-shattering. But these small things, God uses to push back the darkness. Not not only in your life, but in the life of your brothers and sisters as well. Because you never know, that, that simple text or that lunch that you have with somebody that week could be just what they needed to soften their heart to the gospel again. It's vital. It's a vital and important work. And it's vital enough that the problem with which the, Hebrew, with which the book of Hebrews is most concerned. Because knowing full well that a good start with something, particularly the Christian life, doesn't necessarily guarantee a good finish. So the real test is whether a person demonstrates perseverance, which is what our last point is getting at in verse 14. Verse 14 says, For we have have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence, our original confession firm to the end. To the end whether that be the end of your earthly life or when Jesus returns. I like how another translation reads. It says, we share in the life of the Messiah only if. We only share in the life of the Messiah if we keep a firm, tight grip on our original confession right through to the end. So think of Jesus' parable in, in, uh, of the siege in Mark chapter 4. We preached on Mark a, a, while, a while ago and walked through that particular chapter, but he gives four examples of people who have heard the gospel, and essentially we can say they started well, but there's only one out of the four that finishes well. Mark 4.20. But those that, are, that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept the word, and bear fruit according to the word. And so to do this, to persevere in this way, our author author continues his exposition of Psalm 95 to show that we we need spiritual discipline to hold on to uh, until the very end. So in Hebrews, he gets his point across by asking three questions in these final verses. Okay? So, which is basically a warning uh, to you about having a puffed-up view of your own spiritual strength. That somehow you think, I'm good, I don't need, I don't need the body of Christ, I don't need uh, to do these you know, certain spiritual disciplines, I can just kind of get by here and there with this short little devotional life that I have, and then I can, I can persevere to the end. And what, what Hebrews is getting at here is saying, no, you can't. You can't do that. So he asked several questions. One is The first one's in verse 16. He asked the question uh, from Psalm 95, so this is kind of like this Q&A Bible study that he's having now. He asks, who were those who heard and rebelled? Who were those who heard and rebelled? So what the writer wants his readers to understand is that these were not random people. These were not unknown people. These, these were God's chosen people. These were, this was the children of Israel who had rebelled against their God. These are the same people that saw firsthand God do great and mighty works among them, both before the wilderness experience, so even as they were getting taken out of slavery, they saw God do these incredible acts, and then during the wilderness experience, and even after the wilderness experience, even though they had to walk through this difficult time, if, you're, if you can recall that moment when they're about to go into the promised land, uh, someone gives confession to, this very simple confession to say about God and his faithfulness, to say, the whole time we walked in the wilderness, our sandals never wore out. Never wore out. We never had to get new sandals. God was with us. God was faithful to us, even in our rebellion against Him. Because it wasn't as if God had removed His presence from them. He he never left them. He never forsook them. In the New Testament we are told um, in 2 Timothy 2.13 where Paul is quoting from the Old Testament to tell Timothy, look, God remains faithful even when you are faithless. Because that's going to happen. But God remains faithful even when you're faithless. So, hold on tight, because you are not somehow more gifted than the Israelites. Don't believe that falling away from the gospel can't happen to you. Paul warns us, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he says, be careful, lest you fall. So the second question we have is in verse 17. Whom was he provoked, for 40 years. Or another way you could ask that is, who was God angry at? Who was he angry at? Now, it wasn't the outsiders as, as one would expect. It wasn't those who were, who were walking in, in rebellion against God, just in general in their life. It wasn't the Egyptians necessarily was angry at them at one point in time, but not in this particular instance. It wasn't the Gentile or the tax collectors that we see later in the New Testament. It's not the atheist you know, that we like to talk about in in the 21st century, or those who are just kind of blaspheming against God. Yeah, there is anger there, and it, it will come upon them. But in this particular instance, his anger is directed towards his chosen people. This is happening inside the camp, not outside the camp. They can't point fingers to other people and say, look at what they're doing, God. No, God's finger is pointed directly at his people. It was people like you and me who who, who have heard his word and then did the opposite. So the danger the writer is trying to convey is the temptation to look at others and say, I would never do that. I would never rebel like God's people rebelled. I would never complain after I saw all of what God has done. What the writer is trying to say is, yeah, you would. Yeah, you would do that. You would deny him three times just like Peter did. You, you would run from him just like the other disciples did when they were in the garden and they were confronted with his, with, with his murders. You would do exactly the same thing. The warning isn't just for the person standing next to you or sitting next to you. It's, it's for you. It's not just for those people who are out in the world. It's for you. So the third question he asks is, Whom did God swear would never enter his rest? And it's simply those, he says, who were disobedient. Those who chose not to walk in God's ways. And again, this is a family problem that he's addressing here. Because what matters to our author here in Hebrews is that the church walk in belief to the very end. And, And it's unbelief that will keep you from persevering to the very end. So in in theological terms, we we call this the the perseverance of the saints. It's a theme that comes up throughout the book of Hebrews because it's the test of the true believer. Those who persevere till the end are those that finish well. Now, it, it may sound like it is, but it's actually, when we talk about perseverance of the saints, it's actually not up to you to persevere. It's not your job. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That God, who has begun a good work in you, God will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Because within this, this persevering is someone who is not holding tightly to themselves and saying, look at all the good things that I have done. Look at how, how, much, how good of a person I am. Look at all these sins that I avoid and these people that I avoid because they're sinful. This, this, isn't, this isn't someone who's persevering to the end by holding tightly to themselves. The person who is persevering to the end, who is finishing well, is the one who is holding tightly to Jesus. Because the way we finish well is by clinging to the one who has already finished well. By clinging to the one, the only one, who could finish well in and of himself. And that is Jesus our King. The one who, who humbled himself and, and came to our brokenness as a baby. Lived a life that we could not, a sinless life that we could not. He took, and he took on God's wrath on our behalf so that we could be at peace with God again. He took all of that on for us. And He is the one we are called to hold on to. The late theologian uh, R.C. Sproul put it like this when he was writing writing about perseverance. And I'll close with this, this quote from him. He said, My confidence in my preservation is not in my ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with His grace and by the power of His intercession. He is going to bring you safely home. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this, man, that great truth. That it is not about what I have done or will accomplish or have accomplished uh, or the sins that I have avoided or, or whatever. That it is only about the work that you are doing in me and through these people here. You are the one that makes us holy brothers and sisters. You are the one who has accomplished this work of propitiation in each of our lives. And you are the one who will bring us safely home. You are the one who will will allow us to persevere to the very end. So God, I pray for these, my dear, holy brothers and sisters, that they would hold tightly to Christ.